As Rick mentioned, our sermon text this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the very first uh, five verses. So if you would uh, find that passage, and as you are turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let me ask for God's help again in our time together. Oh God, we thank you for your word. You say that it is a, a lamp unto our feet and a guide in our path. Father, I feel the weight of being a steward as you call your people here in this entrusted with the mystery of God. And so we pray this morning that it would come not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power and the Spirit, so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on you. That's what we need, O oh God. So we pray now that you would come in power, that you would help us, that you would grab our attention, and that you would establish your word in the hearts of your servants, as the psalmist prayed as that which produces reverence for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our sermon text this morning, as I said, is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Beloved, hear the word of the living God. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. The word of the living God. Well, last month at my work, I had a performance review. Each year, usually in the first quarter, February or March, January, I'll sit down with my superiors, and they evaluate me on the work that I've done, the way that I embody the mission and vision of the company, areas that I need feedback on to improve on, and how well I've done. Now, most of us in this room have probably been a part of a performance review, and maybe some of you, when I say the word performance review, review the palms get sweaty because you have one coming up they're not always easy most of the time we probably agree with what's being said about us and other times it feels like they've missed the mark altogether and typically maybe for you reviews come with some sense of a tangible expression of well done this could be a a bonus perhaps or a or a raise, or more responsibility, but typically they will follow that pattern. Or perhaps you've been on the other side. Maybe you're the big boss, and you've had to think through how to critique strengths, weaknesses, 
how to reward, what to give. Well, I've never been on that side of the table, but I could imagine that it's probably difficult. It might be easy to see those strengths and weaknesses or how someone has done well with a task, but it's, it's, it's impossible for us to see the motives on the inside, why they do what they do and what drives them. Well, even if you've never been in a review or given one, the reality is, as we evaluate every day, all of us do. How is Johnny doing in school? What do you think of Johnny's teacher? Was dinner good this evening? Perhaps even at the end of today, what did you think of the sermon? We make evaluations every day. And this leads us to our text this morning where Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth about this very thing, evaluations, and namely, how they are to evaluate leaders. Now, if we pull back and just start at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, and we look at it as a whole, it's not long before we we see those words division, quarreling. This was a major issue in the congregation there at Corinth. Now, there are other issues, and most of those do influence the divisions. We'll see those issues in weeks to come. But there were divisions that were plaguing this church. And if we consider the first four chapters just getting to where we are today, we could simply summarize those divisions into two main categories, human wisdom and leadership. It's a very simplistic way of saying that. They're they're divided over the wisdom of men and they're leaders in this way. They're making much of human wisdom. They're exalting it to an improper place. And they're making much of their leaders, exalting them to an improper place by way their evaluations come through worldly wisdom. So if we just listen to some of the ground that we've already covered, just in summary, chapter 1, verse 10, very familiar. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but you do be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this. There's factions, right? That each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I am of Apollos and I have Cephas and I have Christ. There's divisions in the church related to leadership factions. If we look at chapter 1, verse 17, Paul tells them that he came preaching the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. So we have this, this whole realm of human wisdom. You know, Paul's not coming with these wonderful oratory skills, evidently, that they were used to seeing. And being in the Greco-Roman world and their philosophers coming through, great smooth speakers, Paul didn't come that way. Not in cleverness of speech. He came preaching the gospel. And he pushes back on their exaltation of human wisdom with the wisdom of God, Christ. The wisdom and power of God. Again and again, chapter 2, I did not come with superiority of speech. He's beating the same drum. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's Paul's message. Chapter 3, Two weeks ago and then last week, we learn, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, 
and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now in chapter 3, right before we get here to 4, Paul responds to the prideful Corinthians who are boasting in their own wisdom with an exclamation point ending right at the end. They're picking their favorite leaders to belong to and they're making them their boast. And it's absolute absurdity, Paul says, because the Corinthians don't belong to Apollos, Paul, or Peter, but Peter and Paul and Apollos and everything in the cosmos belongs to them. We are theirs, Paul says. And they are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Well, that's where we ended last week. And now in Paul fashion, he's not done. Because there's an anti-Paul sentiment that's rolling around in the church at Corinth as well. And for the sake of Christ's glory in the church, he continues in chapter 4. We began in chapter 1 and picked up in 2 and was rolling on chapter 3. And now he's going to speak more about leaders in the church. He's going to address their evaluation of his ministry and church leaders. So this morning as we make it to chapter 4, I want us to consider three points that come straight from the text. How the church is to regard leaders, that's verse 1. The requirement of leaders, that's verse 2. And the evaluation of leaders, that's verses 3 through 5. So leaders, leaders, and leaders. That's the thrust. So don't, don't check out on me. This, isn't, this would be a wonderful passage for a pastor's conference. Don't check out on me that we're talking about leaders. There's a temptation for us to check out. But Paul's aim is towards the church. He's writing to a church. A real congregation of people that he loves, that he spent time with, who had leaders. And later on in chapter 4, he's going to talk about his fatherly affection for them. And what father does not want what's best for their children? So this is important for us today to consider. Well, let's consider that first point, how the church is to regard leaders. Read with me there in chapter 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. How is the church to think about its leaders? Paul's very clear. Paul tells us that the church is to think of them in these terms, as servants and stewards. Notice he didn't say masters or lords, but servants and stewards. And these, these verses tied directly to chapter 3 when he uses the word servants to describe himself and Apollos. Now, this week, we won't do it here, but I just encourage you to walk through his epistles and just see how many times he uses that word. Servants, bondservants. Meditate on those passages. Take a stroll down that lane. Now, he uses many different words in the Greek to describe our English word servant. The one in chapter 3, though it has very much of the same meaning, is different than the one in chapter 4. Now, the word servant here in chapter 4 is huperetes. That word's important for us to think about. We don't usually do Greek word uh, talk in here, but huperetes is a very important word. It means under rower, under rower. It has a connotation of a galley slave. 
So Paul's saying that leaders are to be regarded as an under rower. So this, this servant, this under rower, is also defined by his relation to his superior. There's an authority relationship here. Now, now, what in the world is an under rower? Now, people back then would have understood what Paul was saying. They're on the isthmus there in Corinth. They have the gulf around them. There was these massive Roman warships, these big galleys. You've probably seen them. They've got three decks, right? They've got the oars coming out the side of them, these massive ships. Well, an under rower was like the lowest of the low. They were that third deck galley slave all the way at the bottom. These were the huperetes, the lowest of the low. You can imagine what it would be like to row down there, right? One foot of water maybe above you on the outside and you're down there in this dank, dark place, rowing, an oarsman. Every stroke must be precise, especially in battle. We don't have time for the wind. Precise strokes. You can't see, so they're listening. They're listening to someone who's standing down there with them, shouting at them, the captain. Stroke, 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 or row, 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 whatever, whatever he would say. The rowers would listen to his voice, the under rowers, obeying at every stroke. Their relationship was subordinate to this one. They were under his authority. And whatever he said, they did. Whenever he said to stroke, they stroked. However he said to do it, they did it immediately. Now take all of that, huperetes, and import it into this. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Leaders in the church are called to a lowly position under the authority of their captain, the Lord Jesus as under rowers, listening to His voice, His word, and obeying His voice. Leaders are called to this lowly position of service. This is why Paul is saying ranking leaders like the Corinthians were doing is foolish. They're all on the same level. They're all under rowers. So that's what Paul's saying. Well, what of a steward? Before we think about these two words, let's, let's look at the next verse, the next word. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Well, it's, it's very close, isn't it? A steward is what? It's not a, he's not an owner. He's under another's authority. And he's accountable to the owner. The word speaks also to a delegated authority. You can think about Joseph. In Genesis, in Potiphar's house, he was basically given the estate to run, to take care of the people there. So a steward would have been entrusted with a large estate, likely, running the estate's budget, overseeing accounts, feeding the people, allocating resources on behalf of the owner. Ministers are stewards, Paul says. They are stewards who care for the church. Overseeing the the church, the estate, which is not theirs, but Christ's. The minister has been entrusted to manage this for his Lord. Now that's very different. It's very different than what we usually see today, isn't it? Celebrity pastors who fleece their flocks. Prosperity preachers who live like they own the estate. Or even the CEO model of what we think about in churches. And in Corinth, in effect, the church had a popularity contest for its leaders. Paul makes it clear 
that leaders are not the authority, but they're under authority. They're not to be exalted, but they are to exalt the one who owns the estate. They are not the master, but they're servants, subordinates in service to the master. They obey the voice of their captain. They work for him. They deliver his news. They feed his people on the estate. They go where he says to go, and they do what he says to do. Those titles, servants and stewards, they don't seem like much, but they should sober us. They should humble us. Whatever we think about leadership that doesn't jive with those two words should be put away. Paul gives us more there in the passage. What are we servants? Who are we servants of? We said Christ. And stewards of what? The mysteries of God. What is the trust that stewards in the church have been given? Verse 1, the mysteries of God. Very simply, the Gospel. Beloved, ministers are to be Gospel men. Ministers are to be Christocentric. Christ-centered. This is not new for Paul. He didn't just make this up in this passage. In fact, he exemplified everything that he's saying here. Ephesians 3. Won't read the whole passage. Very similar. Verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And he goes on to say some other things. Same book, Ephesians 6.19. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 1, verse 25. He talks about a stewardship from God that had been bestowed on him. For your benefit, he says to the church, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Ministers are entrusted with the gospel, the news, the, the, the very good news that sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God through Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that Paul proclaimed Christ and Him crucified. He determined to know nothing else. And this is all we have here at Grace. This is all we have, Jesus. He must be the great attraction. This, this one, we think about the mystery, first spoken of in Genesis, veiled in the words of God. In Genesis 3.15, one who would crush the head of the snake. This one, this thread that runs through the Bible, the, the, the spotless lamb in Genesis. The atonement like we're learning in Leviticus. The suffering servant of Isaiah 55. Year after year, the shadow more pronounced until, Paul says, the fullness of time came and God sent forth His Son. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen with wonder and awe. God affect us afresh. Now I make known to you, brethren, which I preached to you, which you also received 
in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, steward, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Beloved, what does it do in you when you hear those verses read again? When we remember the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ lighting that whitewashed tomb and showing us the sinfulness of sin, the the heinousness of, of our sin, our crime, and showing us that our only hope is Christ. What of that first faith-filled glimpse of the eyes of your soul gazing on the crucified one? The perfect Son of God who lived the life that we were supposed to live and died the death that we were to die. What of that glimpse? The empty tomb. Three days later, Paul says, rose again for our right standing before God. For Christ also died for sins, the just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. I'm so thankful for the songs we sing around here. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer His only Son? Who else invites me to call Him Father? Only a holy God. Or to the King who conquered death, to free the poor and the oppressed, for lasting peace, for life and liberty in the Son. This is the food that we need today. The mystery of God, the gospel, the the living bread that satisfies His people now, here. Our best portion, our, our services, we don't talk about this much here, but our services are unashamedly, intentionally built around this news by elders who love you. We welcome you with it. We pray with it and for more of it. And we sing about it. We preach it. We fellowship around the Lord's table. And we consider it again quietly before we leave and we hear, you're dismissed. And next week, the same food, the same platter. We praise God for this place with thankfulness. We're in a gym in uptown Memphis. We've had lights go out. The air doesn't work sometimes. The HVAC doesn't work other times. There's nothing fancy about where we are in that's not to say you saw. We want, we're, we're praying about a permanent space. Your pastors aren't fancy. I probably mispronounced the Greek word that I gave you earlier. But I say all that in sober-mindedness that we have one thing here. And we want to point you to that one thing. as a person, the great attraction. Now, I realize that some of you may be here this morning visiting, perhaps for the first time, and you might say, oh, this is kind of weird. They're praying about loving this Jesus more, and they're singing songs about death and a resurrection and wanting to tell other peoples about a death and someone who rose from the dead. And then they talk about eating the supper and remembering this death. I get it. On this side, we all get it because we've all been there. And I pray that this is a safe space to have those conversations and to have those thoughts but this news friend 
This gospel news, we can't leave you there. This gospel news is for you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's a very big problem that we all have and it's, it's, it's bigger than what we're going to eat for dinner. It's bigger than when the taxes are due. It's bigger than are we going to get the flu this year. It's an eternal problem. The problem the Bible calls sin. It's, it's cosmic treason against the God that, that keeps your heart beating at this very moment. We've all sinned and it's not a small thing. And there's only one way to deal with that sin issue. Someone else had to do it. God. So Jesus, who is God, came to earth, lived the perfect life, and died a death that you were to die. On that cross, punished. Punished for sin. Absorbing all the wrath of a holy God. The Bible says that He was the suffering servant. When we think about servant, He was lowly and despised. The Son of Man. He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. When He was here on earth, He always did what pleased the Father. His motives were always pure. The reason He did what He did was always right. And He died on a cross. And the Bible says He's the only way. And so if you've never heard this message or it's the thousandth time you've heard it, God says He'll have you if you turn from this sin. Derek prayed about repentance earlier. If you repent from your sin, turn and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin. Well, this gospel, the, the mystery of God, is what Christ has entrusted to us. The steward is the manager of the Lord's estate, and he gives oversight to the Lord's people. You know, this is part of the grievousness of the sin that was in 1 Corinthians as well. And all their efforts to have this great TV show, American Idol for Pastors, and let's have our factions, they're missing the fact that the gospel was brought to them, that the gospel was continually being preached to them. Paul brought it, Apollos, Peter. There's nothing, there's nothing in this letter that tells us that there was a doctrinal unfaithfulness by those men. So the favoritism and the party spirit that they had were over foolish worldly things, preferences, a cult of personality. Who's your favorite podcast preacher this week? Did you hear Apollos last week? Man, that guy could preach an hour and 20 minutes. He's so smooth. I love his mannerisms. That guy's a great preacher. I mean, maybe, but look at Peter, right? He doesn't preach that long. But I love the way he dresses. His illustrations are so good. With his Jewish background, I just feel more comfortable around him. And I know most of you don't like Paul, but his mind is amazing. He's very simple when he preaches. But he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm a Gentile, so that's my guy. Well, what about the content of their preaching and their doctrine? Oh, that's good. What about the water? Yeah, it's clean. What about the food? It's rich. Apollos just says it better. That's sanctified imagination, but Paul says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Paul's beating the same drum over and over. 
before God. Apollos, Peter, and myself, we're all the same. We're all galley slaves. We're nothing. There's not a slave level one and a slave level two. We're all under rowers. We're servants to this king. And we're to be regarded all as the same. We all belong to you, Paul says. Everything belongs to you. So the Corinthians were boasting and belonging to their favorite teacher. Their view of God, their view of the gospel, the nature of the church. One click off, as we've heard weeks before. One click off. That's enough. Well, it begs the question for us, beloved, as we consider this. How do we regard the leaders of this church? How do we regard the leaders of this church? It sounds because I'm here preaching to you that's self-serving. It's not meant to be that way. There, there are six elders here. We're all different. We all have different personalities. We're all gifted differently. We don't want pedestals. We don't need pedestals. We don't want to be regarded too highly. We're not saviors, but servants. And if you think too highly of us, we may start thinking way too highly of us. We want you to love Christ preeminently. And we're thankful for your love. It's a good question. Look, I'm a member too. Hunter Coy is my pastor. Rick Couples is my pastor. It's good that this passage, it's grace to us to have this passage. How do we regard the leaders of this congregation by way of application? So we should heed that question, take it to the closet, and while we're doing that, being ever thankful. And I'm saying this with fear and trembling, ever thankful that no matter who's standing here in this pulpit, we're drinking from clean water. That's a grace. That's a grace. Fellow elders, it's good to apply it. Do we regard ourselves this way? If not, we should. We should. This text this week has leveled me. Ten years ago, walking through eldership, behind the scenes, before it came to the church, no guarantees I would meet with these brothers. Brian met with me in 1 Peter 5. Tremendous text about eldership. Acts 20 with somebody else. 1 Timothy 3, qualifications. I'm adding this to my list. 1 Corinthians 4. It would go a long way, brothers, to meditate on this very passage to kill any pastoral pride or temptation to pride that lurks in the flesh. That lurks in the flesh. There's coming a day also, beloved, someday, where we're going to birth babies here. Not, not physical babies, but church babies. Someday, the Lord knows. And you know what we're going to be doing in that day? We're going to be putting our hands on those men. We're going to say, under rowers, we commission you. Get your oars and go, servants of Christ. It takes the romanticism out of it. Being a steward of the gospel is a high calling, but it is a humble service. And finally, before we consider the next point, Paul is speaking to leaders, but for all of us, 1 Peter 4.10 says we're all stewards of the manifold grace of God. So by application, this should all fall on us to use our gifts and our talents entrusted by our God to us, employed in His service. 
Well, leaders are to be regarded as servants and stewards of the gospel. They've been entrusted with it. And as such, Paul says there's a requirement. Look at verse 2. This will serve as our second point. The requirement of leaders. Very plainly, Paul says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The literal sense of the word, worthy of the trust that has been placed in your care. This is what God requires. Faithfulness. Trustworthiness. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that the requirement is eloquence or passion or fashion or size of your church or baptisms or good looks, wisdom, great personality, extrovertedness, or being an eight on the Enneagram. And if you don't know what that is, be blessed. It's not even success. Paul's saying it's faithfulness. Now in other places, Paul describes himself, 2 Corinthians 4, and everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. There's that word again. In much endurance, in afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger, all of these things. Paul doesn't sound very successful. But God doesn't say successful. He says trustworthy. In our day of celebrity, praise God that the requirement is trustworthiness by His grace for the making much of His name. So a leader was to be found faithful in one very important thing. The Gospel. The the single criteria for evaluation of a leader, Paul says, is based on gospel fidelity. The gospel. Loyalty to Christ. Fidelity. That's Paul's great desire and what every steward's desire should be. Right? It's very similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. We won't go there, but you know the story. Man goes on a journey, calls his own slaves, and entrusts them to his possessions. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. He determines that based on their abilities. So he goes away. He comes back. The one who had five and two, they invest it. They double the money. The one who had one, what's he do? He buries it in the ground. He says because he's fearful of his master. Well, what happens? With the one who has five and two, he says, well done. Good and faithful servant. What does he say to the one who didn't do anything and buried it in the ground? Well, at the very end, he says, throw out the worthless slave, said the master. You ought to put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. So he took the talent away from him and gave it to the one who had ten talents. Trustworthiness. Faithfulness. Let this application, soberly, trembling, dive down in the heart, consider it. Beloved church, can we be trusted with gospel purity? Can we be trusted with gospel propagation for His glory? Pastors, can we be trusted with gospel purity and gospel propagation for His glory? In this case, Paul says, moreover, it's required of stewards for one to be found trustworthy. 
Well, as Paul continues to blast away at the Corinthians' view of leadership, he's about to go for the jugular in verse 3. If faithfulness to the gospel, if fidelity to Christ, if trustworthiness is the requirement for those who minister, there is only one who can rightly evaluate leaders. The master of the house. The owner. Not the Corinthians in their court of human opinion and process of prideful scrutiny. It's the master of the house. There's only one who knows who's truly faithful. Let's look together at verses 3 through 5. Point number 3, our final point, the evaluation of leaders. So how is the church supposed to regard leaders? Servants and stewards. What's the requirement? Trustworthiness. And finally, Paul's going to speak to us about the evaluation of said leaders and by application, us all. This is really the main point of these five verses, verse 5, really coloring everything that Paul is saying. So if Paul pulled out both barrels in chapter 3, he's about to put the bazooka on his shoulder here in chapter 4, and as Jordan preaches next week, as we get through 6, the following, he's going to drive a tank right through the middle of the aisle of the church as he thinks about leaders and pushes back. Paul's saying in these verses, Corinthians, there's an evaluator, capital E, of gospel ministry. There's a, there's a divine performance review coming. Not now, but one day. There is one who will examine the faithfulness of my ministry and by application our ministry and an owner who will call to account and who will examine the trustworthiness of the steward. Go back to chapter 3, the owner, the architect. But the one who examines me, Paul says in verse 4, is who? The Lord. So the evaluator is the Lord. In effect, Paul is saying it's God's exclusive right to judge and commend, not yours. You want to exalt with your own wisdom, your favorite leaders to you as worthy, and you have opinions about me, you scrutinize my ministry, that's your boast, but here's the thing. There is a judge and you're not him. This evaluation does not belong to you. It doesn't belong to the church, but to God alone. And Paul's saying, stop it. He says in verse 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment. Stop. They must repent. Now, if you think about Paul's ministry, we've already said he was compared to the other leaders. We know that. They scrutinized everything about him, his speaking. We've already said that. He was probably a very simple speaker. Wasn't that great orator that they wanted? Later in the letter, if you just go through both letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they have much to say about Paul's ministry, that he's defending his lack of success as a teacher. He even questioned, they even questioned his courage and not coming to them. They sent Timothy. What's that say about you, Paul? Roman Corinth, this is from the New Testament, Pillar New Testament commentary. Roman Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic, accustomed to visits by impressive, traveling public speakers, and obsessed with status, self promotion, and personal rights. Interpretation there's still a lot of Corinth in the church of Corinth. 
You see, Paul wasn't examined doctrinally. They were, they were pushing him through a Myers-Briggs test. They weren't using the lens of the gospel. He was evaluated on man-centered criteria. And what we find here as we consider their evaluation is that it was too high and too low. A good word for us. Too high because in the factions they were elevating their leaders to positions that they weren't supposed to elevate them to. And it was too low because they were making themselves God. They were making themselves the final evaluators. Paul says, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Is Paul being arrogant? Is, is, is he just using his own authority, which he has none, in the, in the true sense of the word? No, he's, he's, he's saying that, that I'm a steward. I'm not the owner. I'm a servant, not a master. I'm rowing the boat in the lowest part of the ship. I'm responsible to the captain. I'm responsible to the owner of the estate. And only his opinion matters. He's the one who can see if I've been trustworthy with the gospel. Now, is he saying that we should never evaluate or examine one another? No, because in the next chapter with the nasty sin that's going on, Paul's saying, I've already judged him. Get him out. Clean out the old leaven. Sexual immorality. Paul says he's already judged him. If any one of us, beloved, any one of us, or all of us, one click off, start preaching heresy from this pulpit, you run. Throw us out. Paul's not saying, don't do that. Paul's saying that their human opinions about his faithfulness and their courtroom in dealing with their fidelity to Christ is not theirs ultimately to judge His faithfulness. They can't see in there. They're not the owners of the estate. He wasn't self-appointed. He's not a self-judging man. He does say that his conscience is clear. I don't even examine myself. What is he saying there? He says, as far as I can tell, as far as I've examined, I have tried to be faithful I don't see anything in there. But because He judges and because I know the deceitfulness of hearts, I don't even judge myself. That judgment doesn't even matter. Only His matters. It doesn't mean, beloved, again, that it's wrong or unhealthy for us to have soul care. I want others in my life caring for my soul, asking the hard questions, examining me, identifying grace and weakness. We all need this kind of soul care. But the Corinthians were putting themselves in a position that was only reserved for the judge, capital J. They were seeking to make a judicial, determinative, determined evaluation, rather, on Paul's faithfulness. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him 
from God. Just meditate on that for a moment. The one who examines is the Lord, Paul says in verse 4. When Jesus comes back in that day, divine light is coming with Him to expose it all, including why we do what we do. Motives matter. And only then will each man's praise come to Him from God. So there is a day that's coming. Jesus, who is ruling and reigning, returns for His people. The second advent. The Bible calls that the second advent. He's come once, He's coming again. He's coming to gather His people, to be with Him, His bride. And when He comes, however the timing works out, there's a day of judgment coming. See Revelation 20. Christ is the just judge, the one who will judge the living and the dead according to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And it's the same reference to the judgment in chapter 3 that was preached about last week. This isn't a judgment of condemnation for the believer. Okay, we need to be clear about that. The saints are clothed in righteousness. And He will remember our sins no more. This is the judgment for commendation and reward for works from salvation. This is what Paul is referring to here. He was referring to it in chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, for we must all, speaking of leaders, but it's true of all of us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now why does this judgment come with the second advent? Why is Paul saying, wait until the Lord comes? Because as A.A. A. Hodge, he was a smart man of old, which he wrote in his helpful commentary, he, the one who comes, he's speaking about the one who comes, will then do what cannot be done before by any creature. The God who dwells in unapproachable light, the consuming fire, the exposer of man's hearts, will do just that in that day because He's the only one who can do it. And so with precise evaluation, all laid bare, every corner, every, every room in the house that we think has been locked up will be laid bare and open to the light of the God of Psalm 139 who says even the dark is not dark to you. I love the catechism. We walk through it. Does God know all things? That's an old question, catechism. Does God know all things? Yes, nothing can be hidden from God. On that day, God will light up the dark and make known the motives, the reasons why we did what we did. And this serves Paul's argument. This is what he's saying. Who can evaluate my faithfulness to the gospel as a servant and a steward? Not you, the one who sees it all. And you're not him. So he says, as far as I can tell, I've worked hard to be a faithful servant, but I'm not even examining myself because I can't even see all the way in there. Well, it reminds me of a doctor's appointment I had last year. Some of you may have done this, a stress test. I had to go see the, uh, the doctor for that. Stress tests are terrible if you've had one. Um, but before I had that test, and everything's good, but before I had that test, I had a, um, a cardiac ultrasound. Some of you may have had those too. So the shirt's off and the goop and the, just like I think a lady would have an ultrasound and they're just 
looking at my heart and all the chambers and the arteries and on the monitor there, and she's looking at that and clicking and all those kinds of things. Well, when I got my test results back, they said, everything looks great. And I remember looking over, and I mean, it was like clear. You could see the heart. You could see it beating. You could see the ventricles and all those kinds of things. What if she would have called and said something like this? Everything looks good. Your, your, your heart looks great, except, except near the right ventricle, there was a pocket of man-pleasing. There was a ton of it in there. And we found right next to that, and it was, it was, it was related to, it looks like, a sermon from 2009 where 70% of that, it looked like you were, you were wanting the applause of the people. And 30% was only to him. Now what if she would have said that? Now there's no machine in the entire world that can do that. That would be sobering. But one day, the judge of the earth is going to shine the light of his glory into the depths of our souls and expose the good. Every motive those motives. We can't do that. And the saints of Corinth, they couldn't take their little machine and do that about Paul to judge his faithfulness. What happens next in this passage as we move to close is, is, is almost too good. It's to wrap our hearts around. And then each man's praise will come from God. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Remember, we're talking about a believer's judgment here. Leaders and congregation by application because we're going to be there without deifying us. Without deifying His people. Out of His great love, we will receive praise from Him. Commendation. Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The pleasure of God. God taking pleasure, joy in the servant and his faithful work like the father who, who takes pleasure and joy in the trustworthiness of his children and the children who reciprocally, reciprocate rather, take pleasure in the joy of their father. So will that moment be as we enter into the joy of the triune God Faithful stewards and servants. And according to verse 7, next week, the good work he commends is owing to his grace for the work he gives. We work not for our salvation, but by grace from working those works that have been predestined for us to work, storing treasures up in heaven unto the one whom we love with great fidelity. On that day, finally in the presence of the king, we read it earlier, our scriptural call, Psalm 84. How lovely are your dwelling places. Finally be those people in there. O Lord of hosts, my soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Well, Paul lived with an eye to this day. He lived in expectation of this day. He labored to prepare for this day, even in this passage, and others... There was no hint of anxieties for Paul 
He was clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. His sin was forgiven. He was what he preached. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that his toll was not in vain in the Lord. Let that be said of us, that was said of the Thessalonians. Let us wait with expectation for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. As Christians, we are stewards and servants of Christ. We're to be faithful and trustworthy with our King's gospel and his resources. And there will be a day when we are all evaluated for our work according to what we received. And we will receive commendation, commendation from him who loves us. Well, for Paul, there was also a freedom in knowing the judge. And for us, it should be the same. We read the uh, passage earlier from 2 Corinthians 4 and all those descriptions. We don't have to live life anxiously fretting in the court of human opinion. And to know even if you're being judged unfairly, beloved, maligned, all those things that was described of Paul are described about you. God's evaluation of your work is what matters. Are you maligned? Do you suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are you enduring hardship, faithfully following Him? Soon, 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 you will have the good pleasure of your God face to face. Enter in the joy of my presence. Well, and finally, friends, if Jesus is not your hope, we speak about this judgment. If you're not trusting in Him, the reality of this judgment will not be the same as what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking about leaders. He's speaking about a judgment of works. For Christians, that's the context of verse 5. But you'll be there that day, and it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, of the living God. So whatever you think you're hiding, whatever you think you've put all the way down in there that nobody can see, nothing can be hidden from God. And that day, it'll be too late. To have a favorable meeting with God, you must be robed in the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. So take heed even to this warning that judgment is coming. Put your faith and hope. Look to the One. Look to the One the perfect servant whose motives were always pure and good and trustworthy and faithful. This one, Christ Jesus, who saves His people from their sins. Look to this one and be saved. Well, beloved, you may have had a performance review, as I said earlier. And we certainly want to work with excellence as we think about our employment. But there's a performance coming, a performance review, a divine one that matters so much more. And that bonus or that raise will pale in comparison to the joy of our Master. So it could be easily said of us by application, right? Leaders should be regarded as stewards and servants. The requirement of those leaders trustworthiness 
The evaluation comes from God, the one who will evaluate. It can be said of us, an application. It's true. We're all stewards. We're stewards. We're to be found trustworthy. And there is a day where he will say, enter into joy of your master. Well, let's praise him and pray together now. Father, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to be, all of us, faithful, trustworthy stewards. We're all under rowers in that sense. We're all stewards, the one who owns the estate. And God, we, we want, we want to be found faithful with the work You've given to us. God, help us to desire even more that day. The day of the Lord Jesus. The day when He says, enter into the joy of Your Master. We want to be found faithful. So God, by Your grace, we pray that You would do just that. We thank You for the Gospel. Father, we thank You for the The good news that we don't work for our salvation. Our right standing with You. But from it. So God, we pray that You would infuse us with a a new and fresh and bold desire to go with the Gospel. To do the work of our Master and to bring glory to His name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.